0: Hello and welcome to Top in Tech, a Global Council podcast. My name is Colin Darcy, I'm a Senior Practice Director here, and this week I'm joined by Kate Jones in the latest of our series with leading decision makers and thinkers about tech policy globally. Kate is the CEO of the UK's Digital Regulators Cooperation Forum, the DRCF, and in that body, It brings together the Information Commissioner's Office, the Competition and Markets Authority, the Financial Conduct Authority, and Ofcom. So to bring that together, it is the lead authorities for data protection, digital competition, digital finance, and online safety, So, really covers the ground of UK tech policy. Kate's been in post since May this year. Prior to the DRCF, she had a long career in the UK Foreign Office, the University of Oxford, Centre for Political and Diplomatic Studies, and was an Associate Fellow at Chatham House. So we're in good hands today. Kate, thanks very much for joining me. I wanted to cover two main themes as part of our discussion. The first is AI policy. And as we were talking about before we started recording, there's a bit of a definitional question about what we actually consider AI to be or not to be, whether that includes the scope of algorithms that we see in our day-to-day life online. But putting that to one side, we're talking in the wake of the AI Safety Summit, at Bletchley Park, and I want to get your reflections on the summit, but also more broadly on progress on AI regulation in the UK and indeed globally. And in the second half of our discussion, I'd like to focus in on the DRCF. You're now, I think it's about seven months into the job, and I wanted to get a sense of your priorities, but also to test your views on how the DRCF may or may not evolve in the coming months and years. So if that all sounds good to you, I'd like to kick off on the AI side, get your reflections on the AI policy in the wake of the summits. It has, putting to one side the slightly surreal Elon Musk, Rishi Sunak interview, I think more broadly, it has been hailed as a success, I think both by people who were supportive of the government's agenda before, but also some who had been quite critical, I think were quite surprised and felt that it had done quite well, I think. China and US being in the same room was seen as a, as, a, as a notable diplomatic achievement. And there are a number of commitments, though they may still need to be defined, from companies around data sharing with government authorities or this new AI Safety Institute. So, great to get your view. Do you agree that last week was indeed a success?
1: Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Conan. I think, as you, as you say, the summit was a success on its own terms, essentially. The government, as I understand it, set up the summit in order to focus specifically on frontier risks. And we heard the government say last week they set it up that way because they didn't feel that there was yet enough of a mature international conversation about those risks and commitment to addressing those risks. Um, and that's what they set out to do at Bletchley Park. And they seem to, they seem to have, have, have done that well in, in terms of the declaration that was achieved. At the same time, the government were keen to point out that that's not to minimise all of the other risks of AR, if you like, the sort of non-frontier risks on which they had the white paper back in March. And I think one of the great things about the summit is that in the fringes of it, there was a lot of public discussion about those risks, and that's really helped to, to raise awareness of it in people's minds. Perhaps one thing that isn't quite there yet is what role the existing regulators in the UK play in AI regulation. There was a bit of discussion of that at the fringe. But I think the key point that I would make is that when you think about all these risks, such as bias and discrimination, such as great infringements of people's privacy or such as manipulation, it's not the case that they're not currently addressed at all. The difference between the introduction of AI and some of the other developments we've seen in the past is that AI isn't a new sector that is, as a result, unregulated. Rather, AI is something that's being used in lots of existing sectors of the economy. And there are already regulators in many of those sectors who are thinking about the application of AI there and how to address risks to consumers that the introduction of AI brings. So, for example, Ofcom is implementing the Online Safety Act. And a lot of work on online safety involves thinking about how social media companies use algorithms. The CMA just last week released results of investigation saying that they had secured commitments from both Meta and Amazon on how they will operate in the marketplace, which again involves thinking about their use of algorithms and so on. So AI isn't a new sector of the economy in which we're starting from scratch there's already quite a bit being done to address risks from AI in different ways.
0: Would I interpret from what you've said there, moving into that debate that you alluded to around existential risk, the the focus of the AI summit and the government on frontier existential risks of AI against those more day-to-day near-term risks that we already know quite well. You mentioned some around bias and discrimination and so on and so forth. There was a lot of criticism of the government for focusing on frontier existential risks And also the way in which that led to an invite list that was mostly US tech companies. There are obviously a couple of companies from China, a few from the UK and other parts of the world, obviously, but the the cast was quite US heavy and it didn't feature the deployers of AI systems. So as you say, people across the economy, whether it's large banks, uh, large pharmaceutical companies or healthcare companies and so on and so forth. So just to get your sense, do you share some of that skepticism about this focus on existential risk or is it we can do both?
1: I think it's we can do both.
0: Fine. Well, look, you mentioned before the AI White Paper, and you've also listed within that a lot of measures that individual regulators are taking, not necessarily related to the White Paper, but in their day-to-day work. There does seem to be a slight sense of stalled momentum on the implementation of the AI White Paper, which goes a little bit to my previous question, whether some would argue maybe the government's been a little bit distracted with the summit and hasn't focused on the implementation so much. Now, we don't have to go into whether that's fair or not, but there is just this broader sense. We're still waiting for the government's formal response to the consultation. And there's other things moving ahead quite quickly. You talked about Ofcom and the Online Safety Act. We saw consultation published the day that we're speaking today. So there's a lot going on. It just doesn't feel like the white paper's right at the top of the pile at the moment. How do you rate progress, that characterisation, and from the DRCF, the four regulators you work with, is your sense that we are actually indeed on track with the white paper implementation?
1: Well, I think in terms of how the government is responding to the white paper consultation and so on, that's that's really more of an issue to them. What I would say is that timeliness is a perpetual challenge in the digital economy, because on the one hand, you've got technology moving ahead really, really quickly, but on the other hand, very fast regulation isn't necessarily good regulation. I think it's really important in a democracy that you take the time to have reasons debate. And I think if you think about where we are now compared to where we were in March when the White Paper first came out, actually there's a lot more understanding of, for example, generative AI than there was in March. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to allow some months for that conversation to to mature. I think in terms of what regulators are doing, I mean, I already mentioned that regulators already involve quite a bit on, on AI. And I think the way that you can think of it, or how I try to think of it, is that the regulation of AI is a bit like a, a jigsaw, where there are all these different pieces in terms of existing regulation. And it's then the role of the government to put all of those pieces together and to see whether there are gaps between them. And if there are, then government needs to think about how to, how to fill in those gaps. But then the other thing, that government has got to do in changing the metaphor a little bit is to look at those pieces of the jigsaw and make sure that they are resourced to take on the regulation of AI in a way. And speaking for the four member regulators of the DLCF, they are each quite heavily involved separately and a little bit together in thinking about the implications of the white paper. So the white paper talked about these five principles to which regulators should have regard in supervising AI. So, for example, just talking about what we've done together. As DRCF, um, a few months ago, we held a workshop on one of the principles, which is fairness, where each regulator and, in fact, the Equality and Human Rights Commission came together, talked about what we're each doing, talked about where there may be common trends, talked about where there may be quite differences, because there are very different approaches between the different regulators, and looked for commonalities there. And I'm sure we'll be seeing more of that kind of work in the future.
0: Yeah, it's interesting when, when we did our... Piece of research which we were talking about before we we started recording. A couple of weeks ago, we published this report on the regulation of Genitive AI, which we interviewed 48 different stakeholders across London, Brussels, Washington, and and Berlin. And the point you just made came up a lot. A lot of the regulators in different countries were making the point that you made that there is legislation and it is going to be applied. So it's not a completely regulation free environment, but resourcing is key. And that came back time and time again, that without proper resourcing, particularly in a country like the US, where you have regulators like the FTC, but where the resourcing is actually quite partisan often, and linked to developments in Congress around budget and so on and so forth, there was a sense that while the regulators had a sense that they wanted to look into these areas, they didn't necessarily have the resources available to them. I think in comparison, possibly UK regulators are quite well resourced. Certainly, they've been scaling up as they've been taking on powers in recent weeks. And that sort of takes me on to the next issue I wanted to touch on, which I was looking at a paper that you wrote for Chatham House before you started at the DRCF. It was about human rights and and AI. There was there was lots in there, so I'm I'm sorry I'm boiling it down to just one sort of simple question. But one of your recommendations was, and I quote here: consider cross-cutting regulation to ensure that AI deployed by both the public and private sectors meets human rights standards. Now I totally take your point that we have some regulation and legislation that covers AI in various different ways across different sectors of the economy. But there are probably gaps there. And that's why you see the AI white paper coming forward in the first place. And that's why we see the EU coming forward with its AI Act and the US coming forward with the executive order. So there are clearly gaps. So some areas are not regulated in the way that would perhaps be ideal. A long way of asking you that the white paper has a system in this original proposal in the UK talked about the idea of a legislative backstop to give those five principles you talked about sort of leg- statutory weight for the regulators to enforce them. So given what you said in, about sort of the need for cross-cutting regulation in that paper earlier and given the possibility that we could add a legislative backstop, is that where you think we should head?
1: Yeah, thank you for um, looking at my paper. Um, and, and I think there are two aspects to that question, Conan. The first one is about um, legislation, and then secondly, I'll say something briefly about human rights, of all right. On the legislation side, if you think about it from the perspective of government, any government, there are various tools that they can use in order to regulate AI in order to firstly provide an innovative environment for businesses, and secondly, to protect consumers. So one of those tools is international and multi-stakeholder cooperation. And you see the British government doing that as at Letchley Park last week. Another tool is support for an AI assurance audit market. And I think we're going to, you know, we, we could touch on that a bit later, perhaps. Another is to encourage responsible business practices. Another is promotion of robust technical standards. And then another is potential legislation and, and looking at the role that regulators play in this environment. And when it comes to that last tool, the role of regulators, I already talked about this sort of jigsaw and how it's the role of government then to look at whether there are gaps that need filling and if so, in what way. And I think that, you know, that's an interesting exercise, a really important exercise for for them to undertake. But in the meantime, I think where in the UK we're quite fortunate is that because existing regulators already have remits, such as, for example, Financial Conduct Authority looking at financial services and therefore looking at the uses of AI in financial services, government can provide direction to regulators to take account of the principles in the white paper without having to put that on a statutory remit in order for it to happen. We're quite fortunate that that there is that capacity there. And that's what government is initially proposing in the white paper. And I think, all of the DRCF member regulators have said that they welcome those principles in the white paper, and as I've mentioned, they are each working on those principles without having to have the statutory backing there. So I think what that leaves them, perhaps, is a bit of a discretion for government to see how that goes, and then to see whether legislation is needed either on those principles or indeed on something else at a an later date.
0: And in the and I keep on going back to our report, but it's very fresh in my mind. But in the financial services chapter, we have in there you always have two different types of powers that are already available to the FCA, for example. One is, or indeed, their European counterparts. One, on one hand, you have things like MIFID II, looking at algorithmic trading rules, which are quite specific to the specific use case of algorithms and AI and financial services. But then you have, I think, what you're referring to, something like the consumer duty, which is much broader. And actually, as you say, it's quite a broad-based power. That can be applied regardless of the technology that's underlying the, the particular regulatory question the FCA is looking at. So there's, there's lots of scope there, as, as you point out. But I also, I was really, my interest was piqued when you talked about auditing and algorithms, and probably people don't say that too often. Oh, I think you said assurance and auditing, but I was really, again, I was looking through the DRCF papers, and there was one that I hadn't really paid much attention to when it got published, and it was around algorithmic auditing. And actually, I found it pretty fascinating. It looked at how Algorithmic audit, auditing could happen by regulators, uh, by companies themselves, or indeed by some form of third party, whether accredited or, or otherwise. And in the paper, the DRCF set out these three different types. One was governance, so around the governance of the organization, which is using an AI system. One is empirical, so was to look at the outcomes of, for someone at the other end, on the, on the output side of an algorithm. So I guess if we're talking about search engine. The, member of the public who is using that search and what they see and testing testing that way. And the others around like technical audits, which was, I guess people would say things like under the bonnets, sort of audits and trying to look at the models themselves. And I was struck by one thing in the paper, which said on technical audits, technical audits are often difficult to undertake given the complex nature of systems and the challenges in gaining sufficient access to systems. And this seemed pretty fund- stark and quite fundamental to me um, on the future of of AI regulation and indeed online safety regulation, data protection regulation, competition rules. How should we interpret that conclusion? Because if we can't get into under the bonnet, so to speak, there is potentially quite a large problem here in our understanding and our ability f- for you and your members, so I suppose your members more than you, to actually regulate these algorithms. So is the problem here a lack of resources or technical skills within regulators? Or is it a lack of powers to Compel companies to give you access? Is it both? Is it something else? I'm just really interested to hear what you think about that.
1: And you did also mention um, human rights, and I'm a human rights lawyer by background. And I think human rights are a really valuable conceptual framework in this space for a couple of reasons. One is because they provide quite a comprehensive set of norms for protecting individuals from harm, and one that's been developed over 75 years. And sometimes when I've seen bits of the AI ethics debate, that has seemed to sort of replicate some of that discussion on human rights without necessarily taking full account of it. But there are other ways of achieving similar results. And the reason that I moved from looking at human rights and AI into my work now with the regulators is that the frameworks that the government are using to protect consumers also achieve similar results, whether that's through data protection and privacy at the ICO, whether that's through competition in consumer law at the CMA. And, and, and online safety at Ofcom and so on. But I think the other really important role of human rights is on the international side, because human rights are a universally accepted framework. The Universal Declaration of Rights is literally that, and therefore, that offers a lot of scope for international agreement at a time when geopolitically, international agreement can be hard to find. And indeed, you see human rights referred to um, several times in the Bletchley Park Declaration last week. On, you mentioned the consumer duty. And I think that's that's an example of an interesting new trend among regulators, where you're moving from regulators monitoring the imposition of very specific duties to duties which much more place the onus on organizations to consider how they are complying with standards. And in the digital economy, where things are moving so quickly, I think that shift is really important and placing the onus on businesses to think actively about whether what they are doing protects consumers from harm is a really important one. and You see it with the consumer duty at the FCA, but you see it also in the Online Safety Act and in various other pieces of of legislation and new regulation as well.
0: It was quite interesting you mentioned that actually because John Edwards, when we were talking with him recently, made the point that one of the key elements of the GDPR, and whether that's the UK or the EU version, is the concept of accountability and that he doesn't necessarily need always to necessarily prove that that harm has happened. But if the ICO can prove that a company has not been accountable in the way in which it has managed its systems and moved to protect consumers, then that is a problem. That is something they can move against, which is a slightly distinct, exactly. but separate point, but yeah. quite similar to what exactly. I think you're trying to say.
1: Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's another example.
0: Yeah. So on the technical audits, I'm not going to let you go on this one. No, hey, not at <laughs> all.
1: So each of the DRCF member regulators wants to see a robust high quality third party algorithmic assurance and auditing market we heard from the government a couple of years ago that they wanted to see the emergence of that kind of market in the uk and it's something that the drcf has been following really closely since then and it's got a couple of interests in this firstly is that having a robust system of third party audit helps to drive up safety standards and consumer protection and of course that's exactly what the What the regulators want to see. And secondly, because each of the DRCF regulators themselves either has already or is going to have duties to assess algorithmic systems. So, seeing how um, others are doing it, seeing the strength of that market, seeing whether they may be able to bring third parties in as experts on that, for example, that's really of interest to them. So, as I say, we've done a fair bit of research on this in the past. And and you mentioned some of this, Conan. And I think the research threw up a couple of factors that make this kind of audit quite complex. One of them is that it's not quite like financial audit, where you have a sort of a set of numbers and then a linear set of metrics and you're matching them to it. You're looking at something that's far more complex, algorithmic systems that whose impact may develop over time, and you're assessing them by reference to metrics that aren't necessarily completely objective, things like transparency and accountability and fairness and so on. So, as you say, our, our research threw up some of that and, and one of the challenges that it threw up is the extent of access that the auditor actually has to the kind of the black box at the centre, which they would need to have in order to perhaps to do audit effectively. So, the DRCF is actually planning to do some further research on this, looking at the state of the market, looking to identify and learn from examples of good practice for the sake of the DRCF member regulators, but also to help... It to think about whether the regulators can best help the emerging market to, to develop in a really positive way. So we see that as complementary to the good work that, for example, the CDEI has also done in this space.
0: It's interesting you say that because I was thinking as you were talking that this point is often brought up by Roger Taylor, who was the former chair of the CDEI. He's often talking about how we think about to regulate algorithms and the different ways in which we can do some of these empirical but also technical audits. Very interesting, that second piece of research, and I'm sure others on the, the line are. So um, we'll look out for that as and when uh, that gets published. But let's move on to the sort of second part of it. We've done a lot of around AI, a lot around algorithms. I want to get a little bit more into the sort of the DRCF itself, and not, not just the sort of the wake of the summit. And there's three basic pillars to your work, as I understand it. One's capabilities, coherence, and collaboration. I want to just pick on on each one. And if we start with, Capabilities, one of those is on her, um, one of the elements you focus on, a part of capabilities is horizon scanning, I guess, on behalf of the, the four regulators to try and spot new technologies which will reshape industry, our economy, but also our society. And we've seen with ChatGPT, Gentive AI, how actually these emerge, what seem often quite far off emerging technologies suddenly break through and uh, transform not only the commercial environment, but also the regulatory environment. I noticed you've done some insights paper on quantum. In your work plan, there's references to the metaverse and digital ID. And I just wanted to get a sense of which technologies are you and your team playing closest attention to and see as potentially the most transformative as we look ahead uh, for the next, I don't know, five to 10 year period.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps before I do that, I should just give a little bit of an overview about what the DRCF is and isn't, Please because do, I realise yeah. we've got far, quite far into our conversation <laughs> without it explaining that. So, the DRCF brings together four regulators Ofcom, the communications regulator, Competition and Markets Authority that regulates on competition and consumer law, the Financial Conduct Authority that has responsibility in financial services, and the Information Commissioner's Office, um, which uh, has responsibility for data protection and privacy. And the DRCF itself isn't a regulator in any way, it's simply a connective tissue between the four of them. So that They can come together either where there are areas where there might be potential overlap or perceptions of overlap between their remits in order to look at how those look and to help provide clarification for the market as to how those intersections land. And then secondly, to come together where it makes more sense to do things together and separately for reasons of efficiency, because perhaps we're all looking at the same thing. One of those areas is on horizon scanning. So, we have quite a strong horizon scanning program looking at various upcoming technologies and their potential implications. So, as you mentioned, Conan, we did an insights paper on quantum earlier on in this year. And if you read that paper, it talks a lot about what the technology is and how it might develop. And then it gives a very early look at potential regulatory implications from that technology as regards our four regulators. And what you see there, perhaps unsurprisingly, is that our member regulators would apply their existing frameworks to the upcoming technology. So, for example, the ICO would want to see that there is information and data security in the way that content is applied and that there is respect for privacy. The CMA would want to see that there are open competitive markets and that there is protection of consumers and so on. And I think that's then helps me with perhaps the broader point that you're making about going into the future, because in each of those future technologies, that's essentially what the regulators' starting point would be. Okay, how do we apply these existing principles which have stood the test of time, which do provide protection for consumers, and at the same time, enable innovation? They would be looking to do the same thing on future technologies. So, quantum, as I say, is one area where we've done quite a bit of work. The team's also been working a lot recently on immersive technologies, such as the metaverse. And they're planning to publish a foresight paper on that by the end of this year. And in that, they've been looking at factors that could shape future of immersive te- environments. I think immersive environments have been thrown off the headlines a bit by, by Generous generative AI this year, but clearly still a really important upcoming area. So they'll be looking at things like the likely extent of personalization um, or interoperability and what impacts those have. And then again, looking at the regulatory implications of immersive technologies for the regulators. And then after that, the next project that they have in the pipeline is one on digital ID, which is hugely important area. I'm really looking forward to seeing um, seeing them get stuck into that piece of work and, and, um, and where that goes. Beyond that, um, we haven't yet identified what areas to pick up next. As it happens, we're going to shortly be launching a call for input into our work plan for next year. We did one for last year and the responses we got were really helpful in shaping the work programmes that we've got at the moment. So as part of that call for input, we may actually be very interested in hearing from others about other areas that they think we ought to look at in that horizon scanning project because they may soon raise regulatory implications.
0: But well, I think for those who are listening, there's a clear invitation then to, when that call for evidence comes out, to participate and to make sure that the DRCF and Kate and her team are looking at the issues that you think are important and where regulatory issues may emerge in the coming years. Kate, the second pillar, coherence, which is one I'm particularly interested in. I, l- I looked at the annual report from the DRCF. I, I know that will have mostly been prepared uh, before your time. I don't know if you were in place when it was published, but. It was a, so, it was, yes, it was before you, you were appointed that that was published. But in any event, there was a joint statement highlighted in it, which was between Ofcom and ICO on data protection online safety. It's something that's talked about uh, quite a lot as almost best practice of how the DRCF is bringing together some of the regulators, the four different regulators. I do wonder, though, whether there are limits to coherence. So, with the Online Safety Act, there's been a lot of controversy over whether powers related to encryption will come into place or not. And we saw high-profile comments by WhatsApp and Signal and others around this. And I guess my question is, do you think there is limits to coherence between those competing priorities each of the regulators will have? So obviously, Ofcom naturally will prioritise child safety and also safety of all users online and to stop the dissemination of such content on messaging services. The ICO may take contrary point of view which privacy is the most important priority here to make sure that people are able to have conversations to share information without being monitored both in and of their own right are sort of very valid principles to apply but they don't necessarily mesh together on something like encryption so i know it's a tricky question because you've got your two two, two different regulators there, but i just wanted to get a sense of your view on is there a limit and a ceiling to coherence in this regard not necessarily that example but more broadly
1: I mean, a couple of answers on that. Firstly, would be that given my background as a human rights lawyer, human rights is all about finding balances between competing principles. And there are always ways of doing that. So that's the first thing. But the second point is that on the specific example you raise about end to end encryption, clearly that isn't something that's been decided at the level of the regulators. That's something that's been considered by Parliament. And Parliament um, have uh, established a bill, which is now an act that sets out particular powers and discretions and parameters for Ofcom in the area of end-to-end encryption. And I think that that is absolutely the right place for that debate between principles to happen, i.e. in Parliament, rather than at the level of the regulators. So on this particular issue, the discretion then has been given to Ofcom within the parameters of of the Act, and it will be for Ofcom Exercising its independent powers within those parameters to decide how it exercises its discretion. That's uh, straightforward. But I think there are lots of other really interesting examples of coherence. And speaking personally, I haven't encountered limits to those coherence. That's not to say that they might not exist, but I think a lot of things can be worked through. You mentioned just now the interplay between Ofcom and the ICO on online safety, and they're working really closely together. Because if you think about the safety of children online, of course, that absolutely brings together questions about children's privacy and data rights on the one hand, and then off comes online safety responsibilities on the other. They're really working closely together. And in fact, the the way that I first heard about the DRCF was that I'd been thinking quite a lot about data protection online for, for a long time, and then sort of became much more aware of of the CMA and what the CMA was saying about the importance of interoperability in order to ensure healthy competitive markets. And that did look like attention. And I encountered the DRCF because I saw that the DRCF had brought those two bodies together to actually work through that. And that if you look at their, their paper, and I think it's from about early 2022, they once they actually went into those issues, they found that there were far more synergies between them and there were differences, and that you could actually work through all of this stuff. And that's that's what the DLCF, I think, that's where the DLCF has strength, is that it brings together the regulators to actually work through those apparent contradictions, and then to set out for the sake of businesses, for the sake of consumers, for the sake of everybody, where those dividing lines are. And I think that's absolutely vital in today's digital economy. You, know, you see all of this new These new pieces of legislation and regulation, you have to really think about the interfaces between them.
0: Yeah, on the point about Ofcom and the Online Safety Act, I for one would not like to be in the shoes of Melanie Dawes and Jill Whitehead or indeed their successors if and when that particular power, whether that needs to be activated or not, you can just imagine the pressure that will come and the the warnings of WhatsApp being switched off in the UK and the pressure that will take on the regulator. Not looking for you to comment on that one, but uh, it'll be an interesting thing to see how it plays out in the coming years. So let's go on to collaboration. The Labour Party in the UK have recently proposed a regulatory innovation office that's going to act as a one-stop shop for businesses that currently fall between multiple regulators. Details aren't very expansive, so we're sort of going on, on, on fragments of information that we've had that someone like Peter Carl has, has spoken about in public. Interesting get your take here because I wondered almost if they were describing the DRCF almost in some ways because I know you have this multi-agency advice service you're thinking of piloting which sounded actually quite similar but also you have a broader convening role I think is it the UK regulators round table that you have that, that plays some I mean I know it's not quite like for like but you, you play this sort of role not just within your four members but across Different regulators to ensure a bit of coherence, but also perhaps in that pilot you're running to do some of the stuff that Labour are talking about in this regulatory innovation office. So, just a few reflections there would be just quite interesting.
1: Yeah. So, we don't yet know very much about the proposed um, regulatory innovation office, as you say, and and looking forward to hearing more about it. From what we have seen published about it, it looks as if it spans all regulators, whereas the DRCF is, is only about all regulators. But also, crucially, it's a a creature of, of government to provide more regulatory accountability and drive up standards, um, rather than something created by the regulators themselves, which is what the DRCF is. And of course, its remit isn't just digital either. So it it's, m- seems much broader than the DRCF. And also, as I say, a, it would be, as I understand it, a, a government body rather than body of the independent regulators. But I think where perhaps potentially there's a there's a shared motivation. Is in wanting to really help businesses understand how to comply with regulation in the digital economy. Because we hear quite a lot from businesses that maybe they're, you know, they're keen to comply with the rules, but sometimes it's not quite clear how to do so, especially where perhaps more than one regulatory remit is engaged. And so in that vein, as you just mentioned, Conan, GRCF is establishing the AIM's digital hub with government funding, which hopefully will come into operation in spring next year. And that will essentially be an advisory service where businesses who feel that they need advice from more than one regulator can apply a sort of one-stop shop and then get advice from across those regulatory remits. So, So that's the idea there. And it's very much about Encourage, encouraging innovation and trying to create a climate that really helps businesses to to innovate and to, to understand regulation. And I think it's going to be hopefully valuable for businesses, but it'll also be really valuable for us. Because as we try to decide what are the most important points where we ought to be working together, the kind of queries that we get there will really help us to see that and therefore to see where we should focus our shared attention in the future.
0: I wonder almost where the Labour have inadvertently found themselves in in what you are doing, albeit in a much narrower way, as you say, digital AI help isn't going across the full realm of the economy. But it's it's interesting, you may inadvertently be able to test some of the ideas that they're already thinking about uh, were they to come into power next year. Possibly,
1: but I think I I see what we're doing as being similar to, more similar to services that the ICO and the FCA each have individually at the moment. Because they each have experience in operating both sandboxes and advice services that businesses can come to, and essentially what we're looking at is a joint one of those. I think the this RIO is 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 a bit broader and a bit more about accountability of the regulators as well, but but obviously that remains to be seen.
0: It's fascinating, really interested to see how that that plays out. So, Kate, just to conclude, and you've probably been thinking as we've been talking that. He hasn't asked me the question that everyone always asks me, which is, why is the DRCF not a super digital regulator or a super AI regulator or something, something or another? I saw when you had the uh, select committee, was it the chair said to you, described almost like a private members club was how he described the DRCF. So anyway, seven months into the role, great to get your reflections on this. Now, I know you're not going to reply to me and say, yes, the DRCF should become a super regulator. But I'd be interested to understand, is there something smaller than that, something more incremental perhaps that you would like to see, whether that's more resourcing, a greater degree of independence, some other remit beyond coherence, collaborate and capabilities that you'd like to see? Is there something you think that could make the DRCF more effective as you look forward to the rest of your term in post?
1: Well, I think, as I mentioned, we're going to be having a a call for input shortly, so other people's ideas on things that we could do differently or better will will be helpful in that. But from my perspective, I mean, as we've talked about throughout this conversation, regulation in the digital economy is really challenging. It's challenging for governments, it's challenging for businesses, it's challenging for consumers often even to know what good looks like and what good doesn't look like. And then it's, it's challenging for regulators as well. And I think there are a number of different ways that it that it it could be approached just as 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 we've discussed but provided that you have the approach that you have at the moment where essentially you're looking to your existing regulators to each do their absolute best using the powers that they have and incoming powers that they have you need some sort of cooperation mechanism between them and that's what drcf provides and so Therefore, I think DRCF is 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 well positioned to do that. If you were looking at some quite different systems, such as, as you say, removing jurisdiction from the existing regulators and giving it to a new AI regulator, then you might not need the DRCF anymore because you wouldn't need that corporation. But the challenge of that different model is that you would lose all of, for example, the FCA's expertise on financial services. You'd lose the benefit of the CMA's expertise on, on um, competition law and consumer law and so on if you were to sort of throw out all of that in creating a a, a new regulator. So given that you want to, or assuming that you want to use your existing regulators to their best advantage, then as I say, I think having a collaboration between them um, is is really valuable and and indeed essential and that's what the DRCF does. And so therefore, having thought about this really carefully, I do think that the DRCF is in the right place. Now, whether there could be tweaks that could be made, as as you've just suggested, um, you know that's something that could be discussed. I've just mentioned the AI and digital hub, which will be a big evolution for the DRCF because it will be the first time that we will be providing a service to businesses rather than providing um sort of discussions between regulators and and think pieces and research and and collaboration at, at that level. So that already. Is quite a significant evolution for us. People sometimes ask whether we ought to um, have a statutory footing or be more independent than we are at the moment. But you know what I've observed in the last six or seven months since I've been in role is that what makes the DRCF work is the championship that it has from its member regulators, and that's championship that starts with the CEOs and goes right down through the regulators. So that while there's always a sort of tension between, on the one hand, regulators doing their own work and on the other providing resources for this shared work the DRCF, that tension is one that we're able to hold and overcome because we have that championship, because everybody sees that value in collaboration. And I think the risk of putting us onto a statutory footing or sort of requiring us to exist in some form is that you lose that championship. And so what's currently done voluntarily and for positive reasons because becomes something that's burdensome. And so I wouldn't like to see that. So therefore, as I say, overall, my belief is that the DRCF is essentially in, in a good place and, and that we'll, we'll continue to see evolution of it, as I say. I'm not looking for any sort of radical change.
0: Okay, so evolution, not revolution. Correct. And Kate, okay, can I just, before we before we finish... The call for input you mentioned, that's coming when on your next year's annual reports?
1: Within the next few weeks.
0: Within the next few weeks. So for those who are listening, do keep an eye out for that. And obviously just to keep an eye on the the DRCF website, if you don't spot it, which I believe is www.drcf.org.uk, but hopefully you'll see it advertised and distributed uh, more broadly than that. Um, Just to thank you, Kate, for what was a really wide ranging set of issues, I know we weren't quite high level on the safety summit down into the technical audits, round to the sort of tensions between different regulators of coherence and all these sorts of issues. So it's really fascinating to get your viewpoint. I think we probably could have gone much deeper and gone much wider for a few more hours, but thankfully for you, we haven't. But thank you for joining me today. And just for those who are listening, if you want to look into these issues much more, I've given you the details of the DRCF website, but for Global Council, that's www.global-council.com. So thanks for joining us and hopefully we'll have you next week. Bye bye.
1: Bye bye.